This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting in Michigan. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I am Jolan Ansami, your co-host joined by Natasha Sardoj, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable brings together leading voices from business, government, media, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and via YouTube on International Leaders Summit. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. This weekend on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting in Michigan and the Midwest, we're delighted to once again welcome to this program a special guest and trusted ally, the Honorable Morris McTeague. The Honorable Morris McTeague is Vice President for Outreach at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University in the greater Washington, D.C. metro area. Mr. McTeague serves on the Executive Advisory Board of the International Leaders Summit, and he delivered keynote addresses at the Jerusalem Leaders Summit events in Israel, the International Leaders Summit's events in Brussels, Eastern Europe, and Washington, D.C. Mr. McTeague has testified on Capitol Hill and published articles in many major media outlets, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, Bloomberg, Business Week, U.S. News and World Report, and the Chicago Tribune. In Washington, D.C., McTeague advised the White House, Office of Management and Budget, and most federal agencies on issues of accountability and transparency and has consulted with legislators and governors in more than 30 states. A former cabinet minister and member of parliament in his native New Zealand, McTeague was one of the architects of the New Zealand miracle, which dramatically reformed the country's government and economy by implementing market-driven pro-growth policies. He later became New Zealand's ambassador to Canada and received the prestigious Queen's Service Order in recognition of his public service from Queen Elizabeth II. Indeed, we are delighted to have the Honorable Maurice McTeague joining us on America's Roundtable this weekend. Welcome, Mr. McTeague. Welcome, sir. Thank you very much for your warm welcome, and thank you for inviting me to be back with you and speaking to the people of the United States. In your excellent, always relevant piece, Rolling Back Government, Lessons from New Zealand, that was published in April 2004, you shared about New Zealand's government being elected in 1984, of which you were cabinet member of seven different ministries, and you identified three major problems. Too much spending, too much taxing, and too much government. The question was how to cut spending and taxes and diminish government's role in the economy. In America today, we face the same problem, and we are not just trying to deal with it economically, but today we are also fighting an ideological and utopian rhetoric of socialism, of those who justify big government on the grounds of providing free services, by free meaning paid by us, taxpayers. Mr. McTee, could you kindly share with the listeners about your views of what is going on in America and the best practices from your first-hand experience as a reform minister in the Reform New Zealand's government that could be applied in America today? My response to the question that you're posing to me is slightly different in that free societies are very dependent upon the institutions that they build to protect that free society. And the United States, two of those institutions, in my view, uh, are damaged and are in bad need of repair. One of them is 
free speech, our ability to be able to say what we want unhindered. The other is the rule of law. And too often we have people making arbitrary decisions instead of using the legislature. These institutions can be repaired, but it requires a courageous legislature and people with vision who realize that they should be making decisions that are about the next five years, the next 10 years, and the next 20 years, not just the next election cycle. And to do that, it's going to require people of courage uh, and people of vision. All of those things, in my view, in America at the moment, are in bad need of repair. They're not destroyed, um, but they do need repair. And I think that that has led to a lot of the discord that we see and the extreme partisanship that goes on in government. It doesn't need to be that way, but I think that the deterioration in those institutions have helped that to happen. Uh, And now we have a situation where a number of those institutions, I think, have really been called into question and things need to be done to shore them up. And if I was to pick one of those, one of the things that really is important to you and I and every other person who's a voter, uh, not somebody who's a candidate for election, is confidence that the electoral process is fair. And we've seen in the United States over quite a long period of time, challenges from both political parties about elections that they deemed were not fair. Uh, You can go back to the election between Gore and Bush, and the Gore campaign never, ever was happy about the outcome in Florida. Uh, You can go to the 2016 election, and the Clinton campaign was never happy about the end result and said a whole lot of things that were inappropriate. And then, of course, the most recent election and the Trump campaign was unhappy with the end result. We, the people, need to be able to have confidence in that institution. And we need to do something to address that. And in my view, there are a lot of international institutions that actually have organisations that address election fairness. They're normally multinationals, but they look at elections all around the world and they look at whether or not they were conducted in a reasonably fair manner. What I'd suggest is that America needs to think about creating something like a Federal Election Oversight Commission. And the purpose of that oversight commission would be to restore public confidence. And it would be required to look at the preparedness of every state for elections, to look at how well their processes are designed so that they are fair processes, and the legality of the things that they're going to do. And they should assure the public before every election of the state of those things in in that particular community. And after the election, they should also go around and do an audit and say how well uh, those things were done. Then we might actually start to get some confidence that this institution was indeed working as it should. But that commission wouldn't work, in my view, unless you designed it very carefully. And the first thing I would say that None of the commissioners should be people who've ever held elected office. Uh, And ideally, they would be people like retired judges. You would appoint them for one term only, say 10 years, so they couldn't be reappointed. And you would give them the resources they need to do the job, but also make certain that they're not actually changing the rules or making the laws. What they do is they publish what they see. They put it out there in front of the eyes of the public. And then the electoral 
process and the governing process under pressure will actually do the right thing. I'm not suggesting we have another institution that becomes sort of a supreme and overrules the state's legislation-making process. No, leave that where it is. But have somebody who can look at it with an independent, unbiased eye and say, this is not good enough, or yes, this is fine, the accusations are unfair or unreasonable. Mr. McTee, how would you go about reducing the size of the government at this stage? Because we saw that the COVID-related stimulus packages amounted to the total of $2.4 trillion by the end of 2020. Public debt reached levels of the post-World War II period amounting to $27.8 trillion. Government size amounted to 35.7% of GDP in 2019, but it's hovering around 35% for many years now. And the U.S. government budget deficit reached a record of $736 billion by January 2021, which is an increase of 89% year on year, which is to be expected with COVID relief package. But how do we go from here? From your experience in New Zealand and how you slash the government size, what would you suggest for America to do? Well, first and foremost, you actually have to know what you're doing. And often governments aren't too sure just about exactly what they're involved in. And then if you know what you're doing, you actually have to work out, is it doing anything useful and should we be doing it? Because if it's not, you should get rid of it. And there are so many things that have been created from time to time that were whims or maybe essential at the time, but governments aren't good at terminating anything where its usefulness is finished. So if you just went around and you terminated all of the stuff that didn't belong there, that would be good. If you stop the federal government and the states competing with each other to do the same things, let the states do the things that are states' responsibilities and confine the federal government to the things that are really federal. The last thing is that you actually have to convince the people that the free stuff you get from government isn't free. Somehow that you pay for it. And while we're fairly conscious of what we pay in taxes, what we don't see is how our wealth might be eroded by government spending and debt so that the value or the purchasing power of our money declines. That's particularly harsh on people who have reach the end of their earning career because they can't go out into the market and earn again. They're dependent very much upon what they've accumulated over time. And that's a very subtle way in which governments actually um, take from the people without it being um, so obvious. The last four years, we've seen the American dollar compared to other currencies around the world decline in value quite significantly. And that is a price that's being paid by people who have fixed incomes, but also by all of us. Uh, so we complain about houses and the price of houses, but frequently it's the purchasing power of our earnings that have declined, not really the cost of the house that's increased. So making people more economically aware of what's happening around them would be a good place to start and make them aware of the fact governments don't have any money of their own. They only have what they take from you and me in the form of taxation or other fees uh, and charges. We need to make people aware of that so that they become more aggressive and say, uh, get your hands off my money. Mr. McTeague, you and Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher shared in the belief and advanced the significance of free markets, free trade, competition, 
low tax, and a small state, noted as winning policies to augment economic growth. The famed entrepreneur Richard Branson wrote on Twitter, I quote, Margaret Thatcher was the greatest advocate for competition that we had in a long time, unquote. And through the reforms that you spearheaded in New Zealand, and that which transpired in Britain under Thatcher, we noticed that countries which advanced pro-growth policies attracted jobs, capital, investments, and top talent. The same can be seen at the state level in the United States, and they're called policy reform laboratories, with results that show us what policies are working and not. States are competing for jobs and capital. Today, when we look at states across America, we see how certain states such as California, Michigan, and New York are keen to embrace socialist policies. The Business Insider report stated, the top-earning New York residents may have to pay 14.7% income tax, Governor Cuomo warned this past week, unquote. California has a nation's highest income tax rate at 13.3%. Michigan has a flat income tax system of 4.25%. Florida does not have a state income tax. Mr. McTeague, what are your thoughts when you look at states across America and what states are faring better than others? I'm going to answer that in a slightly different way um, because places will change as governments change and individuals change. And a lot of it's about leadership. Your political persuasion doesn't necessarily make you a good leader or a bad leader. It's whether or not you're prepared to make the hard decisions when the hard decisions are required and whether or not you are prepared to do the things that are done to make this a better place. Let's just start from this position and say, if you live in a place that's got bad government, it's your fault. You elected them. You need to think about whether or not you want to stay in a place that has that bad a government that's that bad, or you go to do something about changing the government so you don't have government that's that bad. There are too many places that elect the same cabal of people into government time after time after time. And if it's not going well, that might be the reason why it's not going well. I know a few people who are right of centre from uh, who from time to time did a very bad job of governing. And I know quite a lot of people who were left of centre who from time to time did a good job of governing. And we experienced that in New Zealand and the major reforms were actually started by uh, a centre-left Labour government and completed by a centre-right national government. The thing that really needs to happen is that somebody needs to say, as Margaret Thatcher did, I am going to put the great back in Great Great Britain. We are heading towards third world country status and then start doing the things that everybody else said was suicidal, like privatising the national trucking company. Could you imagine if all the trucking companies in the United States belong to the government, how well that would work? They're one of the good parts of the transport industry in the United States is that the competition between carriers. The second thing is that People often think about competition in different ways, and they get one of them wrong. And that's when they think about competition, sometimes in business, but also with government. And that is that it's not quite fair. There might be a better way of doing it. And I would say to them, if you're right, I think that every NFL team should allow each person on their squad to play for equal minutes in every game and see how well that works out or that nobody should actually get a gold medal at the Olympics. Everybody should get a, a pewter medal for actually participating. 
So going faster or slower wouldn't matter. But if you are competing for a gold medal, what you know is that competition is essential for you to be ready to be able to win that gold medal. And it's the same sort of thing in the rest of our lives. Because we have different ambitions, we don't all want the same thing on a day-to-day basis. Some of us might want to have a job where we spend more time with our family and we can go on holidays and we can play a role in their education. Other of us might be much more career-oriented and want to be the top of our career in the sciences or in the professions or whatever it might be. That's okay to make those choices. But when you make those choices, you actually pay a price. And the price might be that you don't have as much in dollars and cents, but you have a lot more in the wealth of quality of life. The places that do best are the places that are freest. And by that, I mean that wants to go and start a business tomorrow, he can do so. And we don't put a whole lot of obstacles in his way. If his business doesn't succeed, then that's too bad. But it's his problem. It's not the problem of the rest of us. If I want to go and do a job that only employs me for 20 hours a week because I'm studying to get a degree, I have to take a lower salary. That's okay because I've weighed those things up and decided that the degree is really important to me uh, and I'm prepared to pay that price. Where it goes wrong is where the government comes in and tries to level all of those things out. And when you do that, you destroy the incentives that make us the people that we are. And that's when it all starts to go wrong. So around the United States, from time to time, we see states that do incredibly well. And we see states that do badly. And then we see that change. In recent years, for example, the Dakotas have done extremely well. At other times, it's been places like Nebraska or Utah or Texas. And it changes because some of the dynamics change. The other thing that's a little bit unfair about these comparisons is that the last four years for West Virginia has been really good. The next four years might be like the four years before that, really bad. Because somebody's come along and said, most of your industry has to be shut down. And that's because they happen to be in the coal industry. Those are the kind of things that are very hard for places to cope with and to prepare for. And I think that we have to be careful uh, when we think about those sort of things uh, and how we manage them. So competition is the key. Allowing free people to do what they want. Don't try and make everybody equal. Try as hard as you can to allow everybody to achieve their dreams, but don't tell them what their dreams should be. Uh, Mr. McTeague, uh, the same day he was sworn in office on January 20, uh, Joe Biden signed 19 executive orders, requests and proclamations, 11 the next day and in total 51 until last week. Most of them was to undo the President Trump's Making America Great agenda. These executive orders present a stark departure from President Trump's pro-growth policies benefiting all Americans to benefiting big business, special interest groups in green energy, healthcare insurance business, illegal immigrants, while hurting American workers and entrepreneurs. Mr. McTeague, what are your thoughts about Biden's policies in general? And two specific executive orders. One was revoking permit for Keystone XL pipeline. And the second, I quote, pause new oil and gas leasing on U.S. lands slash water, elevate climate change as national security, foreign policy priority. Refer back to what I said right at the very beginning about institutions. And one of the institutions that's deteriorated in the United States is the actual role of lawmaking. And I blame Congress to a fair extent because it has allowed administrations over time to take over more and more of the lawmaking role of Congress 
in the form of executive orders written by presidents. And they often have done that to get out of having to make something that would be a difficult decision for them. So they push it onto the administration. That's bad. And if that's their attitude, they shouldn't be there. We should find better members of Congress. A lot of those executive orders are show without substance. These are not things that are very important. Rejoining the Paris Climate Accord doesn't actually change anything until such time as the Paris Climate Accord starts making decisions that America's going to sign up to. That's when it becomes important. Now, if I go to the two specifics, the first one about Keystone Pipeline, it's sort of iconic to people on the left, and they think stopping it is a major victory. And they say that it's because they want to protect the environment. Well, that last bit is untrue, because if you stop the Keystone Pipeline, you multiply by about 100 times the pollution and the emissions that will occur as oil is moved around the world, because we can't all live on new energy right now. And that means that there's going to be something like 30,000 tankers transporting that oil around the world, burning the most polluting of fuels. And that's what they've achieved by stopping the Keystone Pipeline. Or you could put that same oil on trains in the United States and you would get something like 100 times the amount of pollution you would get to say nothing about the visual impact of it and the physical risks that go with it transporting a volatile commodity like that above ground. So all of those things get ignored because nobody did what they should have done in the first place, and that is do an environmental study that looks at the environmental impact of making this decision. If you did that, you wouldn't make the decision because it gives bad results. The same thing, I think, applies to um, the other executive order with regard to stopping access to, to resources. Society, if you go back for 10,000 years, has each millennium got better and better at finding ways to use the resources of the earth that they live on. And in the 20th century, we actually started to learn how we could convert oil into a whole lot of products. If you took oil off the market altogether, what would we do for plastics? Think of all the things we use them for, and you might say, well, we could do without water and plastic bottles, maybe. But think about the things that we put inside people's bodies today that come from high-quality plastics and inventions and discoveries that have allowed us to use those for all of those kind of purposes. So not knowing what resources you have I think is a step back into the dark ages. How you use them might be something that you want to have a say about. I think that those decisions are ones that haven't been thought through because, you know, quite frankly, reversing somebody else's decisions is not an economic strategy. It's just reversing somebody else's decisions it means there's not a lot of thought went into it. Um, because if it's about good governance, you actually have to admit from time to time that somebody else made some good decisions and you should retain those things. You shouldn't just automatically say everything they did has to be bad because they did it. No, some of the things that they did were good. And um, I can see, and I hope I'm wrong, but I can see in the very near future that the reversal of some of the issues on immigration are going to lead to a major potential threat to the United States, particularly the southern states, as COVID might be brought back into the country again by people coming from the countries of um, Central America. Every day we are experiencing attacks on the freedom of speech and they're being influenced by biased media. The mainstream media and big tech decide what kind of information we can see 
what kind of opinion are we supposed to make, what is acceptable and what not in the public discourse. The power of these companies is reflected in their size, measured in revenues which are surpassing the size of some governments. We cannot do much as individuals who are experiencing banning, shadow banning and seeing a written content, videos and entire platforms being erased. But we have to rely on the government to regulate these companies. And let me briefly mention Australia as the most recent example. After investigation found that Google and Facebook held too much market power in the media industry, posing a threat to a well-functioning democracy, Australia proposed a bill that would make it mandatory for Google and Facebook to pay license fees to Australian media companies for sharing their journalistic content. In response, Google threatened to block Australian users from its search engine. Mr. McTeague, what are your thoughts about specific regulation for the big tech and mainstream media so that all of us can maintain the freedom of speech? Okay, that's a tough question and um, it's going to occupy a lot of minds for quite a period of time going forward. I've talked quite a bit about institutions. And one of the institutions that's integral to a free society is free speech. And the framers in the United States thought so much of the importance of that. They put it in there as article number one, uh, the right to free speech. So that's something that America has always been proud of. Lots of other countries don't feel the same way and they don't have the same levels of freedoms as the United States does. If we actually look back at society over time, it's evolved and has found, found enormous numbers of ways in which we can communicate differently. Now, if you go back to the printing press and then the book and then the newspapers, telephone and the television and all of those things leading up to the internet and then social media, all of those things have enabled us to exercise our rights of free speech uh, in better and better ways. Now, one of the things that people have to ask themselves about is that because uh, some CEO controls a worldwide monopoly of one of the means of communication, are we going to let that CEO make the decisions about people's free speech? Because if they can make the decisions about what you can say, they can make the decisions about who can say it. So let's say we just decide that the CEO can ban somebody because of their ethnicity. You're not going to be allowed. So if you can ban them for their ethnicity, what about banning them for the fact that they're Christian? No Christians will be allowed. No other religious organisations will be allowed. None of my opponents will be allowed. And so it goes on. So I think we're going to have a major debate, not limited to the United States, but around the world, on just exactly what these platforms can do in dictating what the messages will be and who can exercise those messages. And they have extraordinary freedoms at the moment, and they might be abusing some of those freedoms. And how that's dealt with, I think, is going to be a major challenge, because it's going to raise this question of, is it what I say that grants me free speech, or is it, is it access to the medium that enables me to be effective with my free speech? You know, in suppressed societies, social media has been an absolute blessing to them and being able to get their message out and start to challenge authoritarian regimes. We don't want to see that go. So I think there's going to be a real challenge for Congress, the administration, the Supreme Court, and the people 
that will take months and months to resolve this issue of whether or not a CEO can exclude different members of society from being able to speak. I don't know how they solve it, but I think that they have to solve it. Uh, but it has to be on that level, not on a small level of saying, no, we'll do this, because I think it's a bigger question than that. If it's Google today, it's going to be somebody else tomorrow and somebody else the day after. Uh, it's going to be an ongoing issue. The big tech became as like public utility company or companies in communication, such as we had railways, roads, and certain natural monopolies that should be regulated. Otherwise, we can't have access to the same roads. We can't have access to the railway. We can't have access to communication at this stage. I sort of hate regulators. <laughs> and so I've upset a lot of people, but going and deciding that I can say you can do this and you can't do that is something that always concerns me um, because it often finishes up being out of control. I'd rather go in a different direction and somehow or other say that I am going to hold the CEO and the board of directors of Google responsible for abusing my constitutional right of, to free speech and being able to then impose on them, if found guilty, damages that they have to pay me for um, having abused my free speech and leave that sort of in an open market situation where it could be dealt with that way because these people are getting more authoritarian by the week and I'm not certain that the regulators will be able to keep up with them. But if you could put it back in my hands, there's the citizen and say, whoa, you just denied me my free speech. Um, I'm going to do something about it. That I think might be more effective. But how you design that is a major challenge, needs a lot of bright minds to think about it. But it's not necessarily something where we should lurch into saying, let's put a regulator in place and we'll just um, stop them from doing that. Because I don't think that will work. We need a solution that goes that's extraterritorial. In other words, a solution that goes outside the boundaries of the United States and would apply to where these companies are um, market dominant and other societies as well. On America's Roundtable Radio, we have truly been honored to have the Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO, Vice President for Outreach at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And Mr. McTeague serves on the Executive Advisory Board of the International Leaders Summit. Mr. McTeague, we thank you so much for joining us on America's Roundtable. Thank you, Mr. McTeague. You are very welcome, and uh, I love the work that you do. Talking to people is really important. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting in Michigan. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I am Jolan Sami, your co-host joined by Natasha Sardorj, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable brings together leading voices from business, government, media, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and via YouTube on International Leaders Summit. Visit iLeadersSummit.org.